The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, what a challenge this morning with the lights going off and the air conditioner off. We finally got the air conditioner working this morning. First hour was cool. So if you missed the first hour, you missed out. <laughs> we were cool. We could concentrate. We could focus. We were really enjoying ourselves. And I don't know what it is about this, this particular series that I'm teaching on, John. But for some reason, whatever, it just seems like... Uh, Somebody doesn't want this on tape or to be recorded because about three weeks ago, uh, the, the tape recorder taping the first master just stopped. Boom. Right in about the first two minutes and didn't move the tape forward at all for the rest of the hour. And then uh, the, the second master, the backup, got recorded over by, by mistake. So it was lost completely. And then this week, at first, we weren't going to have, you know, this happened and one thing and another. So... Uh, we need to press on for the instruction of God's Word. So open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Before we get into God's Word, let's make sure that we are in fellowship, that we are prepared for the study of God's Word by use of 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that means that all we have to do, whenever we stand to recover fellowship with God, regain the filling of the Holy Spirit, is to admit or acknowledge our sins privately to God the Father. It's a function of our priesthood, our royal priesthood as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's nobody else's business what sins are in our lives. It's not our job to confess. We're not to confess our sins publicly. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue is not confessing to someone else. That may be necessary under certain circumstances because you've done something that involved them. But the issue here is fellowship with God and recovery of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So it's privately confessing your sins to God the Father. So let's take just a few minutes in silent prayer for the option of confessing your sins if necessary, and then we'll get into God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded now that Scripture says that in all things we are to give thanks, and for all things we are to give thanks. So in this situation here with the heat, the humidity, and the lights off, power down, we give thanks. Because we know that as we face all these different tests by utilizing doctrine and problem-solving devices, that we advance in the spiritual life. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in endurance as we focus on your word this morning, that we might have a concentration and focus for the all-important task of learning your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. John chapter 1. The first 18 verses of John relate to the introduction to the gospel. In this 
He is going to build the vocabulary and certain concepts which are so important for us to understand the rest of the gospel. So in the first five verses, we saw that the writer explains the relationship of the Lagos to eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. From that we learn that the Lagos always existed in eternity past. Secondly, that the Lagos had an eternal relationship face-to-face with the Creator God, with God the Father. Third, that the Lagos, the relationship of the Lagos to creation, that He is the one who performed the creation. God the Father is the architect of the plan. God the Son is the one who uh, did the actual creating and God the Holy Spirit restored it according to Galatians chapter, I mean Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And the fourth thing is that the, it related the Logos to life. The Logos is the source of life. In verses 6 through 8 we have our first introduction to John the Baptist and there we see the relation of the Logos to prophets. The Lord Jesus Christ is the center the focal point of the Old Testament prophets, uh, from the from the historical prophets like Samuel and others recorded in First Samuel, Second Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, to the major prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, which are not minor at all in terms of their importance. They're called minor because of the size of those books. They're small. The Hebrew Bible calls them the twelve. Their focal point was the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of Messiah. The very interesting thing about the Bible is here you have 66 books written over a period of 2,000 years by over 60 different authors who come from all kinds of different occupations and backgrounds. Some have religious training, some have great secular training, like Moses who was raised in the palaces of Egypt. Others like um, uh, David who spends most of his early life out in the, uh, uh, with the sheep out in the fields. All kinds of backgrounds, yet they have one consistent message without any contradiction. What a testimony that all of Scripture comes from the same source, inspired or breathed out by God. We saw in those verses the emphasis on John as a prophet, a representative of all religious teachers in general, and specifically a representative of all Old Testament prophets. In fact, Jesus said of him in Matthew 11.11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John the Baptist stands head and shoulders above anybody else in the Old Testament in terms of there being a prophet. And the argument here is very simple. If Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, because Jesus is the Logos, is the eternally existent one, and, and John the Baptist is a creature, there came into existence a man, emphasizing that he is a creature, that if Jesus is greater than John, then Jesus is greater than all prophets. That's the argument there. And then in verses 9 through 13, last week, we saw the relationship of the Logos to the human race, specifically to Israel, that he was the true light who came into the world enlightening every man, And all mankind rejected him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And there we noted that this passage is really, in terms of its interpretation, talking about the revelation of God and and Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, that he revealed himself many, many different ways, as the writer of Hebrews says, many diverse ways, 
uh, in the Old Testament, and yet he was rejected by most. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to be called the children of God, in contrast to the Jews who were proud of their heritage in Abraham and constantly referred to themselves as children of Abraham. So there's this, this point here that it's important that as believers they were children of God. And then we come to verses 14 through 18, which we'll just briefly touch on this morning and come back and deal, deal in more detail with them next week. That is the uh, relationship of the Logos to humanity, specifically to what makes a human being a human being. Verse 14, And the Word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that is, John the Baptist, bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Okay, let's begin in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This, very, this first phrase is very important. It means the uh, Word became flesh. The verb is genomai. That's our verb for coming into existence. It's in the aorist active indicative, which means it re- refers to something that happened in past time. And it means to change your state, to come into existence in flesh form. The verb emphasizes coming into a new state without leaving the old state. For example, you might say that Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. Well, as a pillar of salt, she lost all the qualities and attributes she had as Lot's wife. But you might say that um, uh, John became a baseball player. Well, in the new state, he's a baseball player, but he still maintains all of the attributes and and essential qualities that he had before he became the baseball player. And that's the nuance here. That's the emphasis, is that the Logos did not become something and lose everything he had before, but that he took on something. He added something. He added uh, humanity, and specifically flesh. Now, why is it, do you think, that John uses the word flesh, the Greek word sarks, which emphasizes the flesh of man? He doesn't say, and the Word became human. He doesn't say, and the Word became uh, a man, or the Word took on a body. He says, specifically, the Word became flesh. Now, that's very important. Remember, one of the most important principles, you ought to write this down if you're taking notes, one of the most important principles in interpreting Scripture is understanding that the Bible must always be interpreted in the time in which it was written. Now, when John wrote this gospel, there was a a, a new ideology or philosophy that was developing in that part of the world called Gnosticism. And it had its roots in Platonism. And in fact, it it, it really affected the early church in many, many different ways over the next two or three centuries. And in, in Gnosticism, or in Platonism, which it was sort of the grandfather to Gnosticism, one key element in Platonism is that anything material is evil by its very nature. If you've ever studied philosophy, Plato emphasized the idea, the form, what was 
behind everything, not the concrete thing itself, like this pair of glasses, but the ultimate reality is out here in the realm of ideas, the, 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 idea of gla- the universal idea of glasses or the universal idea of chair. That has greater significance than its instantiation in this chair or that chair or this pair of glasses or that pair of glasses. So, uh, because matter itself is inherently, inherently evil. And so one of the uh, aspects, one of the ways that this came across was that, that Jesus, God could not become a man and take on a real flesh and blood body because then God would be united with something that was inherently evil. Now this, if, you've, if you're thinking, you can see all of the horrible consequences from this kind of, kind of ideology. For example, in Neoplatonism, you had rise of asceticism. Asceticism says anything associated with the material body is essentially evil. Eating, drinking, sex, anything is inherently evil because it has to do with the physical body. So we have to divorce ourselves from the physical body as much as possible to be, to be spiritual. And that's asceticism. It has its roots in this very, very false philosophy of, of Platonism and Neoplatonism. And it had a tremendous impact. I mean, it, it gave rise within the church to concepts of celibacy and asceticism, monasticism, all of these ideas that have become part of certain uh, uh, branches of Christianity all have their roots in the impact of Platonism and Neoplatonism on uh, early forms of Christianity. So, so when John says he became flesh, he's saying, look, he became flesh and blood. Over, over in First John, he says, and we beheld him, we touched him, we saw him, we were witnesses. This is not just some, some spirit that, that just sort of materialized there for us to look at, but he became an actual flesh and blood human being. Now, one of the interesting things about this and interesting implications is that when God decided to communicate to his creation, he doesn't communicate by becoming an animal. Like in Egyptian mythology, you have all these various gods that are represented as animals. God doesn't become an animal. He becomes a man. Why? Because the universe was made for man. From Genesis 1-2 until Genesis 1-26, everything that God does in those six days of restoration, remember God created the heavens and the earth at some time in eternity past. And it was the habitation of the angels. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, And the earth became... Something happened to the earth. It became tohu vabohu, the Hebrew says, without form and void. And that term is used in Isaiah uh, to relate to divine judgment. Something happened to bring divine judgment on planet earth and that was Satan's rebellion against God. And God judged the universe, which was their habitation... And he brought it into absolute darkness and shut it down. And then in resolving the angelic conflict, as Satan is condemned and judged and the uh, sentence is pronounced of eternal judgment in the lake of fire, then Satan says, how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? And so God is going to demonstrate his grace and his love and his power in human history and demonstrate through our lives, that the issue, the key issue, is volition and responsibility. And so over and over again, this is played out. And as a believer, as you make decisions positive towards God, 
then you are providing evidence against Satan. And of course, the greatest evidence was occurred at the cross. That defeated Satan. And so you have the initial creation, then you have this period of judgment between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and then the earth restored for the habitation of man. Man is the crowning focus of creation. And that tells us something about the significance of man, the uniqueness of man, why humanity as humanity is important. Because every single human being is created in the image and likeness of God. Even though that image has been marred and distorted because of sin, every human being still has value and significance because they are in the image of God. Not, it doesn't matter how nasty they are. It doesn't matter how, how uh, rude they might be or obnoxious they might be or ugly they might be. What matters is that they are in the image of God. And that is why murder is a capital crime because it is somebody who is taking the life of a creature who is in the image and likeness of God even though that image has been marred. So when God decided to communicate to his creatures, he became a man, which shows something about how important mankind is. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that brings us to a very important doctrine called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Now, hypostatic is spelled H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C. Hypostatic. Now, that's a very technical word. It may be new to a lot of you, but it's a very old and ancient word that's been used in Christianity for about 1,700 years. It comes from the Greek word hupostasis. H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. Hupostasis. And hupostasis refers to the substantial nature of something. Its essence, its actual being, the, 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 the thing which makes a thing what it is. It's very, very, it's very essence. And the hypostatic union is a theological term that describes the union of two natures, undiminished deity and true humanity in the one person of Jesus Christ. These natures undiminished deity and true humanity are inseparably united. They will never again be divided for all the rest of eternity. The second person of the Trinity is inseparably united with true humanity. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity. In other words, the deity of Christ does not bleed over into the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ does not bleed over into the deity of Christ. You have His deity and His humanity as they are locked apart in watertight chambers so they can't flow from one to the other. But they're united into one person. Two natures, one person. There's no, they're inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, the union being personal and eternal. Now, it's wrong to say that, in some sense, that 
that, uh, or it can be misleading to say that Jesus did X from his, huma- his humanity or he did this from his deity. The reason that's wrong is because the one person did it. Jesus did it. If we get too far afield, you, get a, you, you almost talk like he's a schizo Jesus. And he's got a multiple personality problem. Now, we'll, we'll look at, it, at some of this next week, but there, in, in the formation of this historically, that was the view of a man named Nestorius, where there's no unity. There's just deity and humanity, but there's no unity between the two. So it's like you have this, this split personality. And, and he does everything flows from one person. Now, when he performs some of his miracles, like changing the water into wine or, or stilling the, the, uh, the storms in the sea or walking on the water, he did that from his deity. And it gives evidence of his deity. But he is not just, you wouldn't say that's just his deity doing it. It's evidence, because the one person does it, but it's evidence that he is fully God. He does that from his sovereignty as, 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 as full deity. Jesus possessed all the attributes of God. He's sovereign. He's righteous. He's just. He's love. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, uh, veracity, immutability. All of the attributes of God apply to the deity of Jesus Christ. And he demonstrated that. So there's, a, there, there, there's not a, you don't want to bleed them together and you don't want to keep them two separate. The, the properties don't transfer because Jesus in his humanity did many things in reliance upon God the Holy Spirit. And we're told that, in, in, for example, when he went out into the wilderness and he goes out into testing, he is demonstrating the spiritual life that is going to be bequeathed by him to the church age. And so we're told that he's filled with the Spirit. He goes, he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness where he is tested and tempted by Satan for 40 days. But he handles that not by relying upon his deity, but by relying upon the filling of the Holy Spirit. He's doing it in his humanity to demonstrate that man, that he as man can, can pass the test that Adam failed. That's the point that he's demonstrating. He's not out there doing all of this and living the spiritual life and resisting temptation and all this from his, from his deity, relying upon his divine attributes. He's relying upon uh, the, the filling, the infilling of God, the Holy Spirit. So the hypostatic union, by definition, describes the union of two natures, undiminished deity and true humanity, in the one person of Jesus Christ. These natures are inseparably united, without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, the union being personal and eternal. Now, when we talk about this in terms of nature, the the unity of two natures, what we mean by natures is that combination, the unique combination of attributes, qualities, and characteristics that make something what it is and not something else. So a divine nature is that unique combination of attributes, qualities, and characteristics which are unique to God. In other words, the essence of God. A human nature is that unique combination of attributes that make a being a human being rather than an angel, an animal, a plant, or whatever. And it's comprised of a human body, a human soul, and a human spirit. The human soul is comprised of self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. Now, this is one of the most crucial doctrines 
and all of Scripture, and we'll go through some biblical documentation for this. In the Old Testament, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And the interesting thing to me is that Isaiah wrote this prophecy about 500 years or so before Jesus was born. And this is only one of hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that predict certain things about the Messiah. That he would come from the, he would be a Jew. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Many, many other prophecies. Now, if you were to take 20 of these prophecies and work out the probability that somebody were to predict that these 20 things would happen to one person when they were born over sometime in the distant future, the probability of 20 prophecies coming true is the probability of filling the entire state of Texas with silver dollars four feet deep. Now, unless you've been there, most of you don't comprehend how big Texas is. Texas is so big you can drive all day and drive all night and you're not out of Texas yet. And many times I've done that just trying to get up to Colorado. I mean, Texas is so big you can stick all of New England in Texas probably three or four times. You know, Houston is about the size of Rhode Island. So, Texas is large. So, that gives you some idea of how many silver dollars it would take to fill up the state of Texas four feet high. Now, you mark one of those silver dollars with a red X. And you just randomly throw it out there and stir the pot. Blindfold somebody. The chances that they're going to pick that marked silver dollar on the first try is identical to the chances, the probability of these 20 prophecies being fulfilled eventually in one person. It doesn't happen by chance. And this is one of those prophecies. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now a child, a child will be born. That indicates humanity, doesn't it? A child will be born. So Isaiah predicts regarding the Messiah that this is going to be a child, a human being will be born to us, a son. A male child. So it gets a little more specific. It's not just a human being. It is a child. So that immediately excludes all the females. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And if we look at two of the terms, the names given to this child, they show full deity, undiminished deity. Now, remember for a Jew, a Hebrew in the Old Testament, a name represents the essence of something. Many times a child would be given a birth name, but then when they were older, they would be given another name that reflected who who they were as a person. For example, uh, Isaac is a great one. When God came to Abraham and told him that you will have a child by this time next year, and Abraham's 98 
Sarah's 90 and Sarah's listening in. You know, she's eavesdropping. She hears this. She just starts laughing. So the Lord says, you're going to name him Yitzhak, which means laughter. Isaac. So it reflected him. Then later, uh, for example, with, with Jacob, uh, later on he gets another name, Israel, Prince with God, uh, because of the, his, his characteristics uh, with, with God and his role in God's plan. So these names indicate something about the essence, the personality of a person. So the names here are Mighty God. The two I want to look at are Mighty God and Eternal Everlasting Fathers. It's poorly translated in your Bible. The first word is El, which is the typical name for God. El, the Hebrew for God. El Gabor, Mighty God. So this child, this human being that's born, is going to be called Mighty God. Well, that means that this child is going to be Mighty God. He's going to have all of the attributes and characteristics of God. And secondly, he is going to be called, as it's poorly translated, Eternal Father. The Hebrew here is very difficult. It's Abi Ed. Abi Ed. Now, I can't use the overhead to show you this, but it's one word, and some Hebrew manuscripts may split it into two. But as one word, anytime you have a word like um, Abi, which would be A-B-I, if you were to write it down, that's from the word A-B is father, Av. When you have a a person's name like Abimelech, Avimelech, great story behind Abimelech. Abimelech, Avi is father. The I means my. It's a first person suffix. Melech means king. So Abimelech means my father is king. Now Gideon, in his humility, turned down the offer of kingship from Israel. They came to him because he had defeated the Midianites and they said, we want to make you king. He said, no, no, no. Don't make me king. What did he do? And everybody talks about how wonderful Gideon was. Listen, Gideon was as screwed up as anybody. Anybody. Gideon was a coward. Gideon needed God to tell him five or six times before he would do what God wanted. And then when he has this great show of humility and says, no, no, no. Don't make me king. Don't make me king. What does he name his son? My father is king. Abimelech, Abimelech. Now, Abi means my father. Now, here we have Abi Ed. Ed is a word for eternity. So, it should be correctly translated. If we're going to be at all consistent, I could give you a list of other Hebrew words with the same pattern, but it would be, my father is eternity. That's how this should be. Not eternal father, but my father is eternity. This is a title given to this, this child. Is my father is eternity which is a very poetic way of saying he's eternal. He has this quality of eternal life. And what does that mean? That means he's God because only God has eternal life. This is the same point that John makes in John 1.1. In the beginning, or as we saw when we exegeted that, from that point in time when everything began, in the beginning, at that point in time, imperfect active indicative of a me. He already existed. The Logos was continually in existence. What does that mean? That means eternal. Only God has eternity by definition. That's why these writers continually go back to emphasizing eternality to demonstrate the full deity of Jesus Christ. And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, My Father's Eternity, Prince of Peace. In other words, this child, even though he's a child, He is also eternal. 
So the point that Isaiah is making here is very clear in the Old Testament. So mark it. If you ever witness to a Jew, this is a great passage to go to to demonstrate how the hypostatic union, the deity and humanity, the union of deity and humanity in one person is prophesied in the Old Testament. Another prophecy in the Old Testament is Daniel 7.13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Just turn over Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel 7.13. This is in one of Daniel's prophetic visions. Daniel 7.13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Now, clouds of heaven, if you study poetic imagery in the Old Testament, uses a lot of metaphors and similes. And clouds are used as a metaphor for the chariot of God. God comes on the clouds of heaven. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, in other words, riding on the chariot of God, meaning the one who would ride the chariot of God must be God, so that emphasizes deity, one like a son of man. Now notice it doesn't say a son of man, it says like a son of man. He's like a son of man because he has all the attributes of humanity. But he is only like because he also has all of the attributes of deity. He is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. So from these two passages, Isaiah 9-7 and Daniel 7-13, we know that the Old Testament prophesies that the Messiah is going to be true humanity and undiminished deity united forever. Now, why is this important? It's important because the substitute, the Savior, had to be fully human in order to die as a substitute for the human race. God, could not, God as God could not die for the human race. Because it had to have be, be similar. He had to be a substitute. He had to be of identical substance with man in order to die for man. And he had to be God. Because if he was just a man, then he could only die for one man. But as God, he's infinite. And so his death would have infinite value. So that it could apply to all men. God who is our Savior, the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. That's what 1 Timothy 4.10 says, that Jesus Christ died for all men as a substitute for all men. So first, most importantly, the reason He had to become the God-man is because He had to die on the cross as our substitute. That's the basis of our salvation. That's why the Scripture says that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. You can't do it any other way. Belief in anybody else doesn't matter. It's faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. The Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He was prophesied hundreds of times in the Old Testament. He fulfilled most of those prophecies at His first advent. The rest have to do with His second coming. But He fulfilled over a hundred different prophecies at His first coming. Not just 20, as I said earlier, but over a hundred. And if the, the, the probabilities of fulfilling 20 is so high, what about a hundred? 
that multiplies geometrically. It doesn't happen by chance. Jesus Christ, one of the best ways, if you're presenting the gospel to somebody, is Jesus Christ is either who he claimed to be, or he's a liar, or he's crazy. But you can't get away with saying that he was a good man. And that's a traditional argument in Christianity. Jesus Christ claimed to be the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Now, he only, you have only two options. He was telling the truth or he was lying. See, many people just want to hide behind the fact, say Jesus was a good man, he was a moral teacher. They really don't want to discuss the issue. If Jesus is a good man, then he told people a lot of lies. He's deceived millions and millions of people into thinking he was God and that he died on the cross for their sins. That's not a good man by anybody's definition. Now, Either he believed what he was saying, or he didn't believe it. Now, if he wasn't the Savior, and he believed he was, then he's crazy. If he wasn't the Savior, and he didn't believe it, then he was self-consciously lying and deceiving people. Of course, the evidence doesn't support that. So it's really clear from Scripture that you either have to accept Jesus as who he was, or you have to make a lot of absurd claims about Jesus. But you can't hide behind this this religious verbiage that, oh, he was a good man or he was a moral teacher or religious innovator. You have only one option, and that is to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Savior of humanity. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word today, for the clarity of the gospel. And Father, we pray that anyone who's here this morning who does not have assurance of their salvation, that right now, in the privacy of their soul, they would turn to you and say, Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation. And we believe in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. That he died on the cross, according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again, according to the Scriptures. Father, now as we continue in our lives throughout this week, that we pray for uh, that you would remind us of these things, that you would give us confidence in our witnessing to those around us, and that we would be sure to look on the world as our mission field. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.